So we are going to shift to today's scripture reading, um, and we're continuing our uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality series. So we're going to be in Genesis 22, verses 1 through 3. This is the ESV version. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. This is the word of the Lord. All right. So my name is Changmin. If you're first time at our church, welcome. You are catching us in the middle of our sermon series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Um, first two sermons, I, I talk a lot about why this series at, time, at, at this time. Um, but really, in the middle of pandemic, and this whole idea of emotional health has come to the forefront of our conversation, even before the pandemic. And, and uh, in my conversation with a lot of our, not only our people, but also my friends, my pastor friends, I recognize it, this whole emotional health has been something we've been struggling with deeply. And I thought, hey, I remember reading this wonderful book by Peter Scazzaro called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And I thought, hey, I want to kind of walk us through some of the content that's in the book through the passages in our Bible. So today we're going to be in the third, third sermon. And we're going to be in Genesis 22. But before we jump into the text, let me set the table for today's conversation. Uh, Again, we're leaning heavily on the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro. I think it's like $6.99 on Amazon. If you want to grab it, do grab it. It's one of those books that will change the way you relate to God. It's one of those books that will change the way you relate to people. And I'm not overselling it. You know, I'm a salesman, but I'm not overselling this book. It's a fantastic book. Uh, so you want to grab it. Um, and in the book, Pastor Peter, who's kind of sharing from his own journey, he, he's an Italian-American pastor, you know, you know, leading a significant-sized church. And in like 20-some years of ministry, he realized how emotionally unhealthy he was. And in the book, he addresses a period or a season of faith that we will all walk through as followers of Jesus called the wall. Everyone say the wall. The wall. And he says, no matter who you are, anyone who dares to commit their lives to Jesus are going to face a wall or walls of faith. And so today we're going to be talking about a wall. So what is this wall that Pastor Peter is speaking about? You see, Christian life is really a journey. That's probably the best way I could describe the Christian life. As you think about Christian life, it's a journey. It is a journey of walking with God through all the seasons of life. Some of you guys are seasons of joy. Birth of a child quickly turns to seasons of pain, not being able to get some sleep, uh, or both. Some of you guys are in seasons of growing. You're new to faith and everything you read is just amazing. Some of you guys are growing through seasons of challenges. We're all in different seasons. And each of our journey is unique. The way you came to Christ versus the way I came to Christ is very different. Yet, According to Pastor Peter and many of the great men and women who have gone before us, we all share a similar flow, this flow of our Christian walk. 
all of our journeys begin with, you know, our awareness of God. We recognize, oh, there's a creator. We're created beings. We want to submit ourselves to him because only in him we can find true meaning, true purpose, true fulfillment. And so we, we, we come to Christ. We get in the word. We come to church. We hear the preaching of God's word. We sing these wonderful songs. We're in community, join community groups and share our faith and encourage one another. So we grew, we grow through that. And then we also grow by serving, by giving, by using each of your unique gifts to bless those that are around us, the city. But after a while, Pastor Peter says, we will all encounter what he calls a wall, or some others have coined it the dark night of the soul. It sounds so gloomy. The dark night of the soul. And dark night of the soul, it is a period of time where God seems largely silent or distant. And the disciplines of the word, prayer, meditation that once propelled our growth in Christ no longer seems to work in this season. Not always, but often, these walls appear to us through crises we face in life. A divorce, broken marriage, a job loss, death of someone we love, a cancer diagnosis, a betrayal, a car accident, shattered dreams. And many great men and women of God have spoken of their own experiences of this season called the dark night of the soul. Mother Teresa Amazing saint. Uh, 2007, there was a book released of her letters of between her loved ones called Come Be My Light. These were personal and private letters that were published. And one of her letters revealed, not just one, but several of her letters revealed that she had been afflicted with the deep sense of God's absence for her last half century of her ministry in life. And this was shocking to, to people, to hear Mother Teresa, who was serving the poor, was dedicated to the poor. She spent 50 years sensing that God was distant, that God was silent. Augustine of, and others have shared their own experiences of dark night of the soul, right? And this was the very thing that had provoked David, King David, to soak his pillows with tears. And we have his confession in the book of Psalms. That this was the very thing that earned Jeremiah the title, the weeping prophet. It was the very thing that afflicted Martin Luther, the reformer, and his depression that nearly destroyed him. So in this wonderful work uh, by, by a guy named St. John of the Cross, he actually talks about, he spends a whole book talking about the dark night of the soul. And St. John, he says in this 200-year-old old Christian artifact. It says it is a necessary gift. Even though it's dark, it's hard, it's gut-wrenching, it is a necessary gift. In fact, he says it is the only way you and I, as followers of Jesus, grow out of our beginner's phase of Christian faith. So St. John defines Christian faith into three categories, beginner, middle, and, and, and advanced. And he says, actually, the only way you could get out of your beginning stage of your faith is to actually face these nights, face the wall of your faith, and it is God's gift. These feelings of darknessness, helplessness, weariness, sense of defeat, 
And you pray, words don't come out. You pray, you feel like words just fall flat to the ground. And again, God seems largely silent. Silent. This is a necessary part of what it means to grow in our relationship with Christ. So here are two questions. And, and so Pastor Peter, it's so important for us to think about this as Christians. He actually spends a whole chapter on this issue of the dark night of the soul. And, and he says here are the two questions we want to answer through the story of Abraham in Genesis 22. One, why do these walls exist? And two, how do these walls transform you and I, our, our walk with Christ? So first, why? St. John in his work says this is God's way of rewiring, purging our affections and passions. You know, last several weeks through this series, I talked about the importance of us knowing our feelings, owning our feelings, admitting our feelings, paying, paying attention to how we feel. And this is one way for us to know who God is, made in the image of God. That is important and vital, right? And we want to really encourage that as a community. To be emotionally healthy, we need to know how we feel, how we feel about God. However, there is a danger. On the other side of the coin, there is a great danger of making our feelings the most prized part of our faith, right? But, but some of us, right, like my wife would tell you, some of us, like myself, are terrible at processing our feelings, like trusting our feelings. But there are others of us, our feelings determine most things in our, in our lives. And, and if you think about those incidents where your feelings got the best of you, it's gotten you into a lot of mess. So, so we really got to be able to, yes, understand our feelings, but it is very important that we don't idolize our feelings about God. Often I hear people say, and I say this too, when you attend the Sunday service or a conference or a revival, you say, man, that was an amazing service. I really felt the presence of God. I almost cried. Right? But what does our crying have to do anything with really worship? Other times we say, oh, that service was okay. I'll give it about seven, seven out of ten. I mean, we won't say it, but we'll, we'll think it. I was like eight, maybe six. Pastor Sangmin was decent. We didn't fall asleep. That's pretty decent. Um, and, and, and you may say, you know, we, we, we evaluate our Sunday experiences. We evaluate the worship team. We evaluate the sermon. We evaluate how we felt when we came to service. But po and, and so post-pandemic, if you continue that conversation, if you continue that thought, you're only going to come to church when you feel like it. Right now that we've, we've been online for a year and a half and coming to church is not a regular part of our, 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 our week, it's like, well, I'll go to church today because, you know, we don't have any trips planned this weekend. I feel like I, I, you know, I, like I want to get close to God, so I'm going to come to service. I feel like I want to be inspired by the message. I want to sing and I want to almost cry, so I'm going to come to church. But friends, we, we, we have to remember when we look at Scripture, God never says church is some sort of gas station or a, 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 a charging station where you come to fill up when you feel like you're running low. Like, like 
God never describes church as a place you go to be inspired. You go to, be, to, to, to cry or, or share emotions or, 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 or none of these things. Church is not a gas station. Church is a community that God has placed you in. Yeah, you may think in this you know, world of Google, we're searching churches, we're visiting churches, we're checking out churches, checking our boxes, kids ministry, worship, sermon, community, distance, car, parking, no parking, I'm not going to go to that church. I mean, all of these things, we may assume, oh, we choose the church, we choose our community, we, we, we attend our, 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 our favorite church online. We'll listen to Tim Keller this week. Oh, we'll listen to somewhere else next week. But we have to remember, you don't choose the community. God places you in a community. And really, the community, this is a community. You're not coming to just get filled up. You're coming to love, serve, and to encourage one another. So, so, so really, as you think through these, these reality of how we think about worship, how we think about church... Someone like St. John or Pastor Peter would say, this is why God gives us these seasons of dark nights. So that we don't make our feelings the most important aspects of our faith. In fact, one of the indicators of maturity in Christ is one's ability to distinguish the feelings about God versus God himself. Okay, guys, we got to know the feelings about God and God himself are two very different things. But it is very tempting to assume because we feel closer to God this morning. Oh, the song was amazing. I raised my hand. I feel like so much closer to God than before the song. The truth is God has not moved. God is present. God is in your life. God is all-encompassing, right? God is there. You don't move God because of a song or because of what you do. They're not the same thing. I'm not saying feelings of God are not important. But they are mere messengers that speak to us of Him, not God Himself. So by facing and walking through these walls, you may not have experienced the wall, maybe you're experiencing it now. When it comes, it rewires not only you, but your worship and our taste buds that we might taste them ever more fully. Because God wants you and I to taste the real thing. You know, I talked about Hot Pockets before. Hot Pockets are fantastic when you're 18 and you live in a dorm and you're hungry and it's midnight. It's terrible when you're 38 and you try to have Hot Pocket instead of pizza. It's, it's actually nasty. I feel terrible when I have Hot Pockets now. You know, I, I can't digest Hot Pockets. And in the same way, God wants us to experience the real thing, not just settle for you know Hot Pocket version of Christianity. Amen? So Genesis 22, I want to highlight three major ways the wall or these dark nights transform the way we relate to God. But before we get into that, so, so the context, let me give you the context of Genesis 22. If you grew up in the church, it's a very well-known story. Um, Abraham has walked with God for years and years. In Genesis 22, Abraham is not a young man who's 75, ready to start a new journey. He's a much older man, right? And, and also his understanding of Yahweh has deepened. Him and Sarah have waited 25 years 
for the son that God had promised. In our passage, God all of a sudden tells Abraham, take Isaac, the son you have waited your whole life for, and give him up. Make him a burnt offering unto me. Go, I'll tell you where to do this. To everyone's shock, reading the story, I mean, Abraham is like robotic in the story. To everyone's shock, in verse 3, Abraham immediately gathers his men, packs his bags, begins to obey, gets going. Notice there is no protest. There's, there's no uh, trying to convince God out of this thing. Nothing. Abraham simply obeys. So verse 3, early next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey. When he, when he cut enough wood, he set out for the place that he had told him about with Isaac by, by his side. Verse 5, Abraham finally arrives near the place that God had instructed him. He tells his servants to remain behind. He continues with Isaac to the place where God had told him to go. Verse 9, when they finally reached the place, Abraham built an altar there bounded his own son Isaac, and just as he was about to kill his own son, verse 11, God interrupts him and says, don't harm your son. Now I know that you really do love me. So we read this story, and it's one of the most bizarre stories in all of Scripture. I and mean, imagine the, the type of counseling Isaac will need for the rest of his life. And the way Abram handles the whole situation is even crazier, right? His obedience is, is ridiculous. It's, it's, it's kind of crazy how he obeys everything that God tells him to do. But we have to remember this whole story in the context of Abram's life, right? Again, Abram is no young man here. We have to remember Abram has seen it all, right? He, he's left everything and seen the way God has provided for him. He made mistakes along the way and saw how God restored all those things. And he has walked with God for years and years. And Abram has walked through many walls of faith by this time. And these experiences have changed the way he responds to God in this passage. So three things. First, the walls of our faith transforms, right? This is how the walls of our faith transforms. First, the walls help you and I to live with a greater sense of brokenness. Everyone say brokenness. Brokenness. Right? In fact, one of the major indicators of someone who's made it to the other side of the wall, if you know faithful men and women who have gone before you, your mentors, perhaps your parents, who have walked with Jesus for many, many years, one thing that's common in, mat in, in mature Christians is their ability to embrace their own brokenness. In fact, they're not easily offended. In our passage, hearing God's sort of crazy instruction. I mean, it's crazy. Abraham doesn't panic. There is no panic in verse 3. He doesn't respond, respond in anger. He doesn't protest. Instead, he immediately puts obedience into action. And in verse 7, we are told Abraham and Isaac are walking, and Isaac is like, what's going on? That we're going on this long trip. We got all of this stuff to build an altar. We got wood. We're going to start a fire, but where is the lamb? Like Isaac's like that, where is the lamb? And, and Isaac in verse 8 says, the Lord will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. See, you can only respond that way in that crazy situation if 
you are fully secure in the love of God. It is a response of a man who does not doubt the goodness and the faithfulness of Yahweh. It is a response of a man who has been shaped not only by the joys of faith, it is also a man who has been shaped by different challenges and setbacks. So the walls, one of the things that the walls do for us is they burn away our pride and, and, and our, offendable, our offendableness. That's not a word. I just made that up. Offendableness, it fastens you and I to the love of God. That's one thing it does. It helps us. It humbles us. Second thing, the walls help us to live with a greater appreciation for the mystery of God. It helps us to live with a greater appreciation for the mysterious ways that God works. I mean, again, imagine being Abraham, right? This would have made no sense. I mean, this Genesis 22 is, is just weird. It's a weird thing that God is asking Abraham to do, right? Why take away Isaac? He is their only son now. Ishmael is gone now. Isaac is the only son. He is the answer to a 25-year-old prayer. And Isaac is the only way God's going to fulfill his promise that he has made to Abraham and Sarah. You're going to be mother and father to the nations. So this plan that God has to take his son Isaac and offer him as a burnt offering make no sense. Friends, if you walk with God long enough, if you walk through enough walls in your faith, one of the lessons you'll learn is that God's ways are far different from yours. And this is a lesson I learn every six months as we're church planting. The idea, right, if, if, if you rewind the story to four and a half years ago and said, hey, Sangmin, you're going to plant a church. What do you think it's going to be? I wrote down my plans. I wrote down this vision. I wrote down this whole paper, like 20-page paper about mission and vision and value. One thing I've learned through this church planting journey, one thing probably you're learning now is that your ways and God's ways are very different. What you think is good for your life may not be that great. What you think is terrible and, and, and you don't like it may be the very thing God is using to shape you and train you. So only by walking through these walls, we're going to learn that God is not an object that we can master or possess or control right? or command. God is noble. At the same time, he is actually unknowable. St. Thomas Aquinas in, in, in 1200s, wrote a 22-volume work. Can you imagine reading 22 books about God? It's his, it's his sort of theology, 22-volume book. In the opening statement of his, his work, this is what he says. He says, this is the ultimate knowledge about God, to know that we do not know. We're like, why'd you write this book then? Why'd you write 22 books to tell us that we're not going to learn much? Um, but that's the confession of a man who spent years and years writing about God, thinking about God, processing a, a brilliant mind. And the opening statement of his volume, he says, I'm going to just tell you, we're not going to know everything about God. That's the reality. Pastor Peter, in the book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he says, one of the best gifts of the wall or the walls 
they are a childlike nature. One of the best things we can, we can receive as we walk through these walls of faith is this childlikeness. We learn to appreciate the mystery nature of life and God. When you think about parenting, when you think about your interaction with your children, you know, it's illogical. Like, you tell them something that's totally, completely not true and illogical or, or just beyond their understanding, right? The way I would react to that kind of interaction is like, I want to know. I want to, like, that makes no sense, Dad. Why would we do this, right? But children, they're just like, I'm ready, Dad. I'm ready to go on this adventure. I'm ready to fly. I'm ready to move to Korea. I'm ready to, you know, just there's this childlikeness, willingness to follow, willingness to trust. It's almost like it, 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 sometimes it, it, it freaks me out that, that they would trust me so much, you know, to know that I'm a flawed human being, that I could make mistakes. And, and so it's wild, but this childlikeness. You see, Abraham, when you think about the story, Abraham had no clue what God was really up to here. I mean, he imagined being in Abraham's shoes. He had no idea what God, what God was really up to. Yet over the years, he's learned to place his trust in God. And over the years of walking through many walls of his faith, he's seen God show up. So friends, encouragement this morning is, or this afternoon, you don't know and you won't know everything that God is doing in your life today. You might not like this. If you like to plan, if you like to have your G calendar all filled up, all ready to go, you might not like this. But truth is, you don't know and you won't know everything that God is doing in your life. Perhaps you don't like some of the things that's happening in your life today. Perhaps you are certain you are in a wrong place. You're in a wrong job. You're in a wrong city. And you should be somewhere else. Or doing something else. Perhaps you're right. Maybe you are in a wrong place. Maybe you are in a wrong situation. Yet let me encourage you, even if that's true, if you may be right, even if that's true, let me encourage you, God is still working in your life. He doesn't, and He doesn't want you to merely survive this season. Even if you feel like, oh, I'm in the wrong place, I'm in the wrong job, I'm in the wrong city. God doesn't merely want you to survive. He wants you to grow. He wants you to thrive. And He's always working, even when we don't see it, He's working. Even when you don't sense his move in your life, his working. I mean, Abraham in, in, in Genesis 22 probably felt like a madman doing this thing. Yet God was working. God is working. So the so second thing is, I want to encourage us. Embrace the unknown. Embrace our inability to truly grasp the fullness of God. His way of working in your life. Lastly, the, the final thing that the wall does for us is that the walls help us live with a sense of detachment. A sense of detachment. Let me explain. If you know anything about Abraham's story, it's not hard to see that there was nothing more precious, precious to Abraham than his son Isaac. 
I mean, if you know any parents that had kids when they're much older, like I had my, my, my first daughter when I was like 30, and I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, I was so young, I didn't know how to appreciate. My second daughter came uh, four years later, I was 34, and I have much greater appreciation because I was older, right? I have friends that are parents at 40. They have a greater appreciation. Well, uh, well Abraham was at, almost at the end of his life, and God gives him the son that he's waited for all these years, and this is the son that God is going to fulfill his promise through. Well, imagine, it's not hard to see how important Isaac was to Abraham. It was, it was his, his most precious thing. And here comes the ultimate test for Abraham. Would Abraham still choose to worship and remain committed to God even if God took away Isaac? Even if God was all he had? I mean, ultimately, that was the test for, the, for Job. Story of Job. Satan comes to God and says, well, he's worshiping you because you gave him everything. You gave him a nice house. You gave him a nice family. He's wealthy. He's got everything. He's healthy. And so God takes away everything. And that's the story of Job, right? And so that's sort of the same question we have to ask ourselves. Friends, would it be okay if God was all you had? Don't be so quick to say yes. Right? Like This is what we do, right? We come to faith. We hear the gospel, right? You know the diagram that I drew before? There is the two cliff, us, God, sin. Right? So we hear the gospel, we realize we've been forgiven of our sins, so we walk over to God through grace, and we finally come to relationship with Christ. And then, instead of enjoying our relationship with God, what do we do? We are quick to move on. We do the same thing. Right? We do the same thing. And sort of, we are so quick to move on from God. Right? Even as Christians, a lot of what we do in our relationship with God, a lot of our spiritual disciplines, ultimately, at the heart of it, it's not really about God often. It's not really about God. So would you still worship if you weren't as healthy, if you weren't as successful, if you weren't as well-resourced? Would you still worship God? Your artistic gifting, your athletic abilities, your ability to sing, dance, your careers, degrees, if that was all taken away, your platforms, would you still worship God? You know, last year, if you weren't part of our church, we went through a really, really difficult time as a community. You know, there's a lot of disunity in leadership, uh, people leaving our community, no reconciliation, uh, and, and adding to that, not being able to meet in light of COVID. We couldn't even meet like this. This is probably like second week, us being back. And I think I could say last year was definitely a wall, not only for our community, but for me personally. I, I went through a wall. I went through a season of, of darkness. It felt like the dark night of my life. And what God revealed to me, you know, personally through last year as I'm processing what happened, is that I have idolized the success of our church. Like as a planter, of course, as a, as a planting pastor of this church, I've idolized not failing. I remember first like three years just being so afraid that we're going to fail as a church plan. 
It just drove, you know, my, 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 my unhealthy work relationship, drove my relationship with like this work, work, workaholic nature of my, myself. And, and I think one thing that God did for me through the crazy chaos of last year, and hopefully for our communities to recognize that even this community, even King's Cross, cannot replace the place of God in my life, in, in the church's life. So friends, when you and I don't give up and continue to walk through these walls, and these walls will come. It's not just one wall that you get through and you're done. Little by little, God will change your relationship with things that you have in your life. Um, being a Christian doesn't mean you shouldn't marry, you shouldn't experience joy and sorrow, you shouldn't buy things or use them. No, we should. Yet, we do all those things with a constant reminder that these things in themselves are not our lives. That we have been marked with eternity that frees us from dominating power of things and people. Pastor Peter in the book, he says, Detachment is the great secret of interior peace. Detachment is the great secret of interior peace. You see, all of us along the way, we get attached to behaviors habits, things, and people in a very unhealthy way. For some of you, it's your home. For others of you, it's your drive to experience new country, new things. For others of you, it's your family, your friends, your child, your spouse. The wall, more than anything, cuts off our attachment to who we think we ought to be or who we falsely think we are. We talked about this, right? A lot of our identity has been defined by not who God says we are, but who we think we are because of what others have said about us or what we believe ourselves to be because of the context that we were raised in. That's not who we are. And as we go through, through these walls, one thing it does is it helps us find our true identity and who we are. Abraham loved Isaac more than anything in his life, yet he knew that's not what defined him. See, too many of us, including myself, we hold on to, we hold on way too tightly to our Isaacs as if that's the only thing that defines us. Your career, your family, your spouse, your child, your legacy, your ministry, they're all going to pass away one day. Book of Ecclesiastes is very clear. One day, it's going to be all gone. But what won't pass away, what won't change, is the reality, the true reality of who you are in Christ. So let me end with this. For some of us, perhaps many of us, when we arrive, when we face these walls of faith, you know, we'll want to hide behind their faith to flee the pain. I think last year, as we were going through all this craziness in our church, a lot of times, I, didn't, I wasn't processing my pain. I was just hiding behind my Christianese to flee the pain because I didn't, want to, I didn't want to feel the real pain. We're tempted to utter passages like Romans 8. In all things, God works for the good. 
We do our best to put a smile on our face, sing songs about victory in Christ. Yet when we continue to ignore the pain that, that we are carrying, with even these Christian things, we will not be able to move through the wall. The first thing we must do is we must admit. We must, to be emotionally healthy, we must admit our feelings of disappointment, pain, hurt, bitterness, and puzzlement before God. You should. Yes, we sing songs of victory, but in these moments, you should be honest with God about how you feel. You could tell God, God, I am so lost. God, I am so angry. God, I'm so bitter. Like, I don't know what this year was all about. I don't know what, well, I don't know why I have this job. I don't know why you brought me to this city. I mean, these are honest things that we could still say as sons and daughters of God. And you can do that because ultimately it is God who moves us through these walls. And with that comes mystery. How and when God takes us through is completely up to Him. It could be months, years, even half a century. Mother Teresa, 50 years in the field, in ministry, felt like God was silent. Yet what you and I can do, yeah, it is God who walks us through. What we can do is choose to trust Him choose to wait on Him, choose to stick with Him, to remain on course, even when everything in you tells you to give up and run. And we can do that because of what Christ has accomplished for us. Friends, this is the gospel. Jesus, the Son of God, during His time on the earth, He faced His wall or walls of faith. We we get a picture of the ultimate wall that Jesus had to face in the Garden of Olive. As we sang, as Pastor John led us in the final song, on the night he was arrested, Jesus went to the garden, knowing what stood ahead. He went to the garden, and he began to pray. He began to cry out, literally cry out to God over and over again, God, is there another way? God, I don't want to go to the cross. If there is another plan, let's go with that plan. He asked again and again for the Father to take away the cross, yet in the end, he submitted himself to the Father. But here's the difference between Jesus' wall versus ours. You see, Jesus didn't simply feel abandoned. He was abandoned. Not, by, not only by his closest friends, but God the Father choose, chose to look away when Jesus cried out to him on that cross. Jesus didn't simply feel darkness. He walked into the ultimate darkness, which is death. And he came out of the other side victorious. He did that for you and I so that our sins will be washed and we will be restored unto the Father. So friends, whatever you may be facing this afternoon, whatever you may be facing this season, and how painful it may feel, I want to encourage you again to look, not to yourself, not to anything else, but to the cross, because as we look to the cross, this is what we do at the end of every sermon here, you will know that you are not abandoned. You may feel abandoned, but you are not abandoned. You are not forgotten. 
you are actually loved and God will continue to bring you through the other side of the wall. But we could only do that as we fix our eyes on Him and what He's done for us. Amen? Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord, we thank You for Abraham and just this crazy story in Genesis 22, Lord. Uh, can't imagine all that Abraham has, has endured. Um, yet, Lord, it is, a, it is a wonderful passage of hope to know that as we journey through our own faith with you, we're going to face different challenges, different trials, different dark nights. So, Lord, we, we come to you, and we, we continue to ask for your mercy and your empowerment and your grace. Lord, sharpen us through these seasons of, 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 of darkness. Sharpen our devotion. Sharpen our understanding of what is worship. Um, Lord, we pray for your spirit to speak to us honestly about the areas that is not healthy, about areas that needs to be renewed, refreshed. We pray for humility uh, in all of us to not only come honestly before you, but to repent of things that are not of you, to repent of the ways that we have lived. But Lord, ultimately we find hope in what you've done, Jesus. And we give you glory. If anyone is weary, if anyone is tired, if anyone feels like they're done in their walk with you, God, we refresh them once again. Remind them once again that you're not done with them. Remind us once again what was the, the, the reality of the cross and the gospel. Shake us once again, Lord, out of our... our um, amnesia, out of our, our comfort, out of what we think is right, what we think is good. We love you. We thank you. Just in we pray. Amen.